0: Hello and welcome to this edition of Plain Talking. In this edition, we hear the extraordinary story of someone who has escaped from North Korea, regarded as the most repressive country in the world. Brother David Jardine, a regular Plain Truth columnist, will also help us deal with anxiety when it strikes. But we begin with Afghanistan. With the collapse of the Afghan government and the withdrawal of the United States, the UK and other allies, we have witnessed the sudden return of the Taliban. As tens of thousands of people have struggled to find a flight out of Kabul airport, there is growing concern for the plight of ordinary Afghans. Human rights, the rights of women and religious liberty are feared to be under threat. Endangering the lives of millions of Afghans. Release International is a Christian based organization and is, along with other organizations, sounding the alarm and speaking up on behalf of those with no voice. I'm joined now by Andrew Boyd from Release International. Um, so, Andrew, welcome to the show. good to, be here. Good to, good be to have you. Good to have you around. Um, so, I guess my my question is, in terms of the Taliban's rise to power in Afghanistan mm. and their influence in neighbouring Pakistan, I guess what does it what does this say for the well, maybe not so much the the destiny of the church? in in afghanistan but what you know what are your concerns what, what 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 does the future look like do you think for faith groups particularly christian groups in in afghanistan
1: Well, I think there's good news and there's bad news, and they're both exactly the same. So both of these bits of news are that the church is completely invisible in Afghanistan. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You try and get accurate figures for all of that, and you can't really. The estimate is between 1,000 Christians and 20,000 Christians. We don't know how many, but it's a small church. It's likely to be smaller today than it was a month ago, actually. But that church is an underground church. It's a church that's been driven underground by years of oppression and persecution. Afghanistan is considered to be right at the top of the list of worst places in the world to be a Christian. And this is before the Taliban came back into power. So the Taliban are not going to make things any easier. We've already seen the Taliban have been attacking uh, uh, the Taliban and other extremist groups that may be allied, there's a group that's connected with ISIS. They've been attacking uh, the Hindu minority, small minority there, uh, the Sikh minority, particularly, as you might expect, the Shia Minority, because the Taliban are Sunni, and their raison d'être, their their reason for existence, is to purify Islam as they would see it, with their own particular uh, blazing torch, with their own firebrand, to say this needs to be cleansed. So they've been cleansing their own Sunni clerics, but they've also been attacking Shia. But as far as the church is concerned, the reason why I I said almost factiously that there's good news in this is they've learned to live underground, they've learned to live invisibly. They know what it's like. And today, thanks to digital media, it's more possible than ever before to have an existence which is as careful as that existence needs to be. So the church is well prepared for it, and Release International, which works with the persecuted church around the world, is working with partners in Afghanistan at the minute, I suppose, to strengthen what remains. But The aim is discipleship, it's the training of leaders, it's the distributing of scripture, of digital media, but it's also radio broadcast because there's very little that can stop radio apart from very determined jamming. So it means that even with a great shift of of people, even out of Afghanistan, possibly into Pakistan, those same radio broadcasts will reach out to them. So they are facing a fearful future, an uncertain future, but they are well-prepared and well-equipped to do so.
0: I mean, in terms of, of um, church life in somewhere like Afghanistan, Andrew, is, is there a, a kind of indigenous, um, a, not, not a state church, but a church of Afghanistan, or is there an ancient Catholic community, or, a you know, are we something that looks recognizable from a, from a Western point of view? No, 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 no. You you need to think quite
1: differently here. There is one official church building in the whole of Afghanistan and it's a Catholic chapel in the Italian embassy and it's closed right now. That's it. So the church as it exists in Afghanistan is completely secret. It is completely underground and it is mainly made up of Muslims who have become Christians. Now, for that to happen in Afghanistan... You have to completely think differently to this country. So if you're a Muslim who changes his faith in Afghanistan to become a Christian, you face the wrath of your family. So there are honor killings in Afghanistan. And there are also honor killings where Afghans have fled as refugees. There have been honor killings in the UK. So you face the wrath of your family. That may mean you losing your children. That may mean you being divorced. That may mean you never seeing your children again. It's a really high stakes. You face the wrath of your clan. You see, we think of Afghanistan as a country. It's really a collection of clans. It doesn't really see itself as a sovereign nation. It's tribal. It's clan based. And then, of course, you face the wrath of the authorities. Now, with the Taliban purging uh, anything that seems to be anti their version of Islam, uh, that means that that it's such a dangerous place to be a Christian, unless you're already in some kind of an underground fellowship, and they do exist. Then even to reveal yourself as a Christian to a very close friend, even to your children, is to risk being betrayed. And to risk being betrayed is to risk being killed. The punishment for apostasy that is changing your faith from Islam to something else is uh, typically decapitation or imprisonment or deportation. So the stakes are incredibly high. And with the Taliban raising up that level of intolerance and, that, and bringing with them a culture of intolerance. If you want to see what that looks like, just look to the neighboring country, Pakistan. You know, we, 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 we don't have to guess what the Taliban would do. We, they were in power before we saw what they've been doing. And I can give you some quotes from Christians right now about what is going on right now. But if you think about the strongest visual I can think of in, Taliban would have, uh, in Pakistan would have been Asia Bibi. The Christian who was accused of blasphemy spent years on death row. All of the courts kept on upholding the sentence until eventually somebody in the Supreme Court had the guts to say, this is rubbish. This is a trumped up charge. But if you remember the protests on the streets, the Pakistan Taliban at that time were calling for the overthrow of the government, the death of the judges, the death of Asya Bibi, and there are still many others who languish in death row in Pakistan on blasphemy charges. So the Taliban has
0: power in Pakistan as well as Afghanistan. If we if we just move the conversation a little bit um, in terms of our response in the UK, in the West, if um, people listen to this podcast, for example, were thinking, I'd like to do something, I'd like to uh, help support Release International, for example, or I'd like to be a voice, so speak up for the rights of Christian minorities in Afghanistan. What, what, what's the next step for someone listening to this and thinking, I'd like to do something, but I don't know what to do? Well, the first and most crucial step they've already taken,
1: if you're listening to my voice now, it means you care. And what the Lord asks us to do is to care. And it's always struck me, you know, Jesus at Gethsemane, weeping blood or sweating blood, said to his disciples, could you just watch and pray with me in my hour of need? And they could not do it. And I think that as Christians, if we choose to care And hold these people in our hearts and lift them to the Lord and carry something of the weight of all of that. We are doing a remarkable job and we're doing for Christ because he said, whatever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. We're doing for Jesus what his disciples were unable to do for him. So the first thing to do is to care. But caring and praying, crucial though they are, for some of us, we're also called to take action. So like you, my calling is to be a voice for the voices. It's to speak up. It's to be an advocate for these folks. But organizations like Release International, and there are others like them, will get directly involved. So we're working with partners on the ground who are calling for prayer, who are calling for resources. And these are these are people who are accountable. That's really important with this kind of ministry and who are expert. They know this situation through and through. They're careful. They're cautious but they are determined. So we can provide financial support, which will go to help the Christians in Afghanistan. So, you know, if in your heart you're feeling moved to say, oh, I want to pray, but I want to do more, there is more you can do. If you go to the Release International website, I'm sure that, that will show you what, what steps you could take.
0: And in your, uh, as an organization, and as you mentioned, there are uh, other uh, Christian organizations uh, who are campaigning for the rights of Christians in Afghanistan and in other places, and I guess there are other agencies as well of all kinds, all descriptions. And in terms of what your approach to government, if you like, as you speak truth to power, Hmm. um, which must be a very difficult conversation, what would be your plea to not simply the UK government, but to but to other Western powers. What would you like to see, um, you know, big government doing in this situation? Well, I'd like to celebrate
1: what we are doing actually, and that is that we've embraced the Bishop of Truro's report which was commissioned by the Foreign Office a little while back now, which which links freedom of religion and belief, which is a foundational freedom. We, we talk a lot about the plight of women in Afghanistan, but if you don't have freedom of faith, you don't have any freedom at all. But the Foreign Office commissioned that report, Release International, was one of the bodies that contributed to that report, and it called for a linking of aid and trade with a requirement that the nations we're supporting and giving money to will actually put their houses in order when it comes to what we would call human rights or religious liberty, which which is the freedom of individuals just to worship in peace, just to live to be able to do that. So that means that unlike in the past, when if you were going to get involved in a trade deal, I'm not going to name any names of countries, but the country would say to you, well, you want to raise the issue of human rights, it's not on the table. We're not going to talk about that. It is on the table. It's on the table now. It's, it's front and centre in British government policy. And we're following the footsteps of the United States in that. The US State Department for years has produced a report about religious freedoms around the world, and it will name countries as countries of particular concern. I was just looking up the US State Department report on Afghanistan before all of this got blew up up. uh, And it's really very, very alarming. But it does mean that you where you have that in the heart of government, it isn't just about trade. It isn't just about money. It isn't just about self-interest. It is also about doing the right thing and being an influence for good with these nations. If that doesn't sound too naive, and if it does sound too naive, then maybe you need to get rid of some cynicism, because actually we need to see some righteousness in our
0: politics. Andrew Boyd from Release International, thank you very much for joining us today. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much. We head now to North Korea, also known as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Another country which arouses global concerns for its violation of the most basic human rights. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea is consistently at the top of Open Door's World Watch List the organization's rankings of the world's most repressive regimes. It is estimated that there are around 300,000 Christians living in constant fear in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Just over 1% of the country's 25.7 million population. It's likely that somewhere in the region of 50,000 to 70,000 are imprisoned in the country's brutal labor camps. But this secretive state is now facing major economic and health problems. Despite President Kim Jong-un's upbeat assessments, it is feared that COVID is taking a massive toll on this beleaguered nation. There are also strong rumors of a catastrophic famine and food shortages, as bad, if not worse, than the so-called arduous march of the 1990s. Well, I'm delighted today to be joined by Timothy Cho, who used to live in North Korea before escaping to freedom 17 years ago. Welcome, Timothy. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: North Korea consistently is at the top of Open Doors' world watch list, and it's a country that uh, the vast majority of us know so little about.
2: So I wonder if you would be happy to talk to us about your life in North Korea. So it's been years, obviously, and I escaped from North Korea. Um, I mean, it was quite... S- significantly happening of this farming uh, and people were dying, you could easily see that, and star- uh, see uh, people's bodies and starvation. And even myself was going through that experience. And particularly after my parents left, I unfortunately had to leave uh, without my parents and grew up and wandering life around um, streets and, and, and sleeping outside on the streets and, and on the bridges. So this was my, how I was growing up in North Korea. So this famine, when this context uh, uh, of famine and starvation comes to myself and also all North Korean people who have had survived throughout that process, it is a huge trauma for them. Even, even if this current level is not exactly the same level of what was happening in the 1990s, when this uh, maintaining of the uh, malnutrition, starvation and lack of food and lack of resources in North Korea all the way through from 1990s until today, it's inevitable and very trauma. It is always in the in, in, in psychological fear of North Korean people. Because it is an isolated country, there is no way you can fill up and provide enough risk and food for people while country is significantly closed by itself and isolated. While country maintaining and focusing nuclear powers, huge amount of money go on and, and nuclear development each year. But at the same time, when, lo- when we look at this uh, and uh, with the coronavirus situation, North has gone into uh, and a complete lockdown and closed borders between China and Russia with any other countries outside. So there have been an over 80% reduction of trade over the past 15-16 months. There's no way North Korea could provide food for people or the market has enough resources available for people's activities.
0: It probably may surprise people listening that there's a small but significant Christian group or, you know, there are Christians in North Korea, despite everything. I mean, despite the fact that it is at the top of this World Watch list and which country, you know, who wants to be top of that particular list, but uh, North Korea is, despite all of that and the persecution that we have heard about, nevertheless, there remains a Christian group which numbers hundreds of thousands. Um, I wonder if you could tell us just what's it like, you know, where these church well, maybe not where the churches are, but how the variety of groups or, or where they meet, the kind of environments, and also a little bit then of how you became a Christian because you have your own uh, personal walk of faith in this. So I wonder if you could talk generally about Christianity in North Korea and then how you personally became a Christian.
2: So, and in terms of current uh, underground Christian statistics in North Korea, we actually cannot figure the exact uh, number of Christians. But North Korea definitely is uh, uh, have many underground network and underground Christians in the meantime. And even one North Korean defector who used to be a North Korean spy inside North Korea. He currently did an interview, uh, it is on YouTube, which is available, and his job was watching Korean people constantly, uh, is being um, pretending as a normal uh, citizen. But what, one of the, the particular uh, remembering processes he involved uh, several years ago was tracing down uh, the underground Christians, that the group of network. So he said he, it took him for a few years, three years, eventually to uh, uh, crack down or uh, hold down one unit of uh, underground Christians network. He, he said he, he eventually, however, could not track down everyone. There were so many networks, it was like Spider Man. One, uh, one unit he tracked down was 30 Christians, 30 underground Christians. Because, so, uh, in terms of the security reasons, you can have quite many members, and members also have to not uh, have uh, get, should not know each other. Because of the security visions. But these, these 30 uh, underground Christians eventually arrested by this North Korean spy, followed for a few years, pretending as uh, one of the members. And he said these under, uh, uh, underground Christians, they used to hide the cross and Bible behind the Kim Farmers' picture pr- frames. So in North Korea, every household, factory, even on the train, They have Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il's two Kims, the picture frames. Maybe some of them today even got a third Kim's picture frames. So if you hide anything behind with that picture frames, it is, you have to respect um, highly of what you can. So anyone cannot touch the picture frames unless when it comes from police department, so they can check whether that uh, picture frame has been damaged or cleaned properly. That's it. So they were hiding all these uh, uh, Christian materials and the cross behind of that picture frames. And he said he's shocked. So eventually, they arrested all these 30 uh, underground Christians. But they, he lost the other network, his connection, where he could trace down more. So, some uh, in, in, in some way, we could certainly say they could be 200,000, 300,000, or it could be even millions today. So what it links to the my experience in North Korea during my life in North Korea, I didn't know about Christianity much about because there there was no way you could explore with this account. But I heard so one of my neighbors who were discovered. Because he had the, uh, the household had um, uh, over 200 mini Bibles on the roof. So it was discovered and whole family was um, sent to prison camp, and, and straight disappeared from that point. But during my escape, so I escaped twice and imprisoned four times during this process. But um, during my first escape, I had this opportunity to meet with a foreign missionary. So he first offered me a shelter, where I went to that house, and saw several North Korean kids were looking after by Christian missionary there. But I, because of my brain was education, I thought these kids were kidnapped by this uh, missionary guy, and so missionary man would eventually sell all these kids, you know, to somewhere human trafficking, you know. And I escaped from the uh, Christian shelter house in China. I ran away from the house in, uh, uh, during the night and then continued my journey, but I was arrested. Uh, at the border with other 17 North Korean escapees at the Mongolian border and sent back to North Korea. And I made another escape from uh, North Korea. It was my second escape to China. So during my second escape, when I was in China, and I I was again uh, imprisoned in China when I was arrested in Shanghai. But in Shanghai prison, it was international prison where I was detained with seven international inmates. And one of them was a South Korean guy. He was a gangster. He was reading the Bible. I, I, I still find my, even this is my own story, but I always find amusing myself, although it was a lot of, you know, uh, scary and fear. I was involved in that process of during my young age. still so in this prison in shanghai i cried every night because i was scared to go back to north korea uh, china was uh, planning to make a second repatriation and i knew what was going to happen this time because um, i met foreigners in china if these documents followed with me and back to north korea then North Korea would easily uh, put me in a prison camp or in case uh, to make a public demonstration or public execution, they would be held. So I was well, during my cry, and uh, crying the uh, first a few nights straight, a South Korean guy came and asked me this gangster man, why you cry? And I explained to him all the reasons and situations. And then he suggested to me to read the Bible, and I asked him, what is the Bible? <laughs> And he said, maybe you could find out if you start reading it. And then he also recommended what well, he told me that maybe you start pray to God uh, for your survival because you are in that situation. And I then asked him, about how do you pray? He said, just say amen at the end of the sentence, what you wish for. That's how I started praying in, in Shanghai International Prison. Prison, obviously, it is in general, is cold and fear and scary. So, um, before I was approached by any missionaries or you know Christian uh, contextual materials, um, where I first contact was. And God, I started praying. I asked. I didn't want to die, and I I I asked for his freedom to get out from that prison, not to go back to North Korea. And Amen, Amen. Repeatedly, I did. And after a while in prison, obviously, it, feel, it felt felt like a, the death penalty waiting for. And I asked the God that time because I didn't know whether he was he was alive, that existing by then. I asked him was, if you give me uh, your freedom, so I don't go back to North Korea, but I go to a freedom country, and then I would follow God with my entire life and see, it. but if I went back to North Korea and then I was expecting over my prison camp or death penalty and public execution, I told him I was not going to believe you or... Uh, your existence. So, uh, literally, my high school age, and without even properly knowing whether God was existing or not, I challenged God, God's authorities. But in that sentence, what I asked him was for my survival. It happened to me eventually. <laughs> I was not sent back to North Korea. So, after uh, two months, when two men visited me in prison in Shanghai, I thought I first thought they were North Korean agents, but they were not. They were from the international community. It was very surprised me. And one guy from South Korean embassy, one guy, from, uh, it was a foreigner. I, I couldn't say he was a, an American. But they said it was very rare. Our case was petitioned by many international human rights groups outside. And I was on media as well. And it was pressuring on the Chinese government not to send me and my group, other eight. More than, Woman sent back to North Korea, and then and also explained to me was because while while we were arresting uh, at the American school in Shanghai, because we entered the American school in Shanghai, and during that the traumatic scene, it was taken photos by school students and it it went on social media, and it was. Very much was far wider petitioned in 2004 um, between September and November, and China eventually made that decision not send us back to North Korea, but deported us to the Philippines. But we were the first ever case and that uh, China able made that kind of decision from prison directly to another country. To China, Chinese po- point of view, I was not important and ordinary, ordinary escapees because we were just ordinary escapees, not politically involved and important officers. <laughs> but I always believed that to God, we were very important. Mm. And he wanted the witness to the world. That, and to me particularly, that my question to him was if you will exist, and he did demonstrate that his existence. So since then, you know, uh, when I finally got into the Philippines and got uh, another democratic country, I started, you know, go to church and I followed him, baptized in two thousand seven. You know so which I am today uh, become, I would I happily like to say, one of God's activists you know, speaking yeah. on his behalf and also those persecuted people in North and other countries.
0: And finally, we turn to brother David Jardine, a regular Plain Truth columnist. And this time, David is inquiring about our mental health.
3: Out of all the places where I worked during my ministry, which began in 1967 in a parish in East Belfast, there is one, I think, which made the biggest impact on me. The 10 years I spent as Church of Ireland chaplain to Crumlin Road Prison from 1975 to 1985. This was right in the middle of the troubles in Northern Ireland. So I had the pastoral care of many of the men who were involved in violence. It was a ministry which was demanding, challenging, and yet exciting at the same time. But compared to a parish ministry, it was very confined, dealing mainly with young men who had broken the law. So my religious community, the Society of St. Francis, decided to give me a change of scenery. In 1985, they sent me to one of their houses in America, in New York, in Brooklyn. Now this... Was an exciting prospect. At that time, New York was a dangerous city, 3,000 people killed every year, but it was also exhilarating. I quickly became involved in two different parishes. One was Spanish speaking and included people from every country in Central and South America. The other parish was huge. Most of the parishioners, at least 90%, had originally come from the Caribbean. That meant that occasionally we had preachers from one of the West Indian islands. I remember on one occasion, the dean of the cathedral in the island of Granada was our speaker. He began a sermon with a line that I have never forgotten. One of the tests of mental health is the ability to live with uncertainty. Since I first heard it, I have often quoted that line, just changing it slightly, one of the tests of spiritual health is the ability to live with uncertainty. I know how true that is, because after about eight or nine months in New York, I ran into a difficulty that tested my spiritual health and strength. No need to go into details. Suffice to say, it caused me great anxiety. What saved me was that before I left Belfast, my mother had bought me a book by the great pentecostal pastor david wilkerson have you felt like giving up lately it was telling christians how to be strong in the midst of difficulties and it focused on psalm 55 verse 22 cast your burden upon the lord and he will sustain you i started to practice that not out of virtue but out of need i took time every morning to release my anxiety to the Lord. If I was finding it difficult to let go, I asked the Lord to help me. Usually this gave me a real measure of peace. If Satan tried to put the burden of anxiety back upon me, which he usually did dozens of times every day, I simply said, no, Lord, I have given this burden to you. I refuse to take it back. I was very firm about this. I had to be. I practiced this day after day, and it unquestionably gave me a strength and a peace which I could have found in no other way. There was another pleasant result. After a couple of months, the difficulty was sorted out in a way that was beyond all of my expectations. You see, when we give a difficulty to the Lord, he doesn't just leave it lying there as if it is of no consequence. No, he takes it and works with it to bring a solution, to bring healing in a way that we might never think of. That is what happened with me. So I would say to anyone who is carrying a great anxiety, you don't have to. Let the Lord carry it for you. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Take time each morning to release it to him, and then for the rest of the day, refuse to take it back. Hopefully, you will find, as I did, that it will give you peace and bring a far better outcome than you yourself could ever have dreamt up.
0: Thanks for listening to Plain Talking. Hope you enjoyed the ride. And look out for the next podcast when it appears in about a month's time. Plain Talking is sponsored by The Plain Truth magazine. And if you'd like to know more, please visit the website plain-truth.org.uk. That's plain-truth.org.uk. Thanks for listening. God bless.